what we have uh, for announcements, and uh, we're looking at Matthew chapter 13, and uh, starting, uh, we're in the uh, uh, Jesus kind of sermon or, or discourse on the parables of the kingdom, and we're picking up in verse 24, uh, the parable of the weeds, and uh, this is God's Rectory. word to you. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while the men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore again, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles uh, to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed, that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all the seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables and did indeed he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He, he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears... Let him hear. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for your word uh, that reveals us to us the mysteries of your kingdom. And we pray that you would give us your spirit now to understand your word and that it would indeed shape our lives, shape how we live, shape how we worship, uh, shape how we love. And so send your spirit now to guide us into all truth. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. So, uh, the, as you noticed in your bulletin, our topic for this morning is eschatology, which I imagine uh, for many of you is a new word. What is eschatology? Well, eschatology comes from the Greek word eschatos, which means last or last thing. And so eschatology is the study of the last things. The end times, uh, you might say. And, uh, and eschatology is asking the question, what does the Bible have to say about the final chapters of human history? And uh, the Bible basically has a view of the world, a view of human history, 
that divides the world into two ages. Okay, there's this present age, which we are living in, and then there is the age to come. And you see that there in verse 39, where Jesus talks about the harvest is the close of the age. And the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the close of the age. So the way that Jesus viewed human history is that we are living in a present age and that there will come a time where we will enter into the the age to come, where God will remake the world. And the Bible doesn't uh, tell us everything that's going to happen uh, in this transition from this present age uh, to the age to come, but it does tell us some things. And uh, let me just say that about this topic, about end times, last things, I, I just have to confess that Christians have said many I can only say goofy things about this topic. And, uh, and whether it's all kinds of predictions, uncertainty of that the Bible is saying certain things that are going to uh, happen in current events and oftentimes have been proven wrong. And uh, the reason for that is because a lot of these things come from unwarranted warranted readings of the scriptures. And I think for that reason, some of you may just think that this whole topic is kind of a silly topic. Do, do, is this really something that's beneficial to my spiritual life? And, um, well, I would say absolutely it is. And um, that uh, it's my conviction. The Bible says uh, that the future is absolutely integral to the Christian life, understanding the future. And I'll tell you why that is. Because, um, you know, I mentioned a few weeks ago that the way that humans interpret their lives is by understanding that they're living in a story. I mentioned that a few weeks ago. That actually, your brain remembers things in your life by constructing the events of your life into a narrative. And so the only way that you make decisions about how to live right now is based on what story you are living in. And so you have all kinds of things that have happened in your past, experiences that have happened in your past, that explain the world to you. How do you understand whether people should be trusted or um, you know, what job you should get or what you're capable of doing? It comes from experiences that have happened in your past. And then all of us kind of have things that we're anticipating about the future, right? You're constantly making predictions about your life, what's going to happen in the future. And these two huge boulders of your past and your future are like two things that cram together into this moment in the present. And the way you make decisions about how you're going to live in the present is based on these two huge realities of the past and the future. And what being a Christian is about is that essentially God gives you a new past. And what's in the past for us is we have faith of what God has done in the past in Christ. He's died for all of our sins. He's been resurrected. And that's in the past. That defines our past for us. And then the Bible also gives us a hope for the future about things that, are, that God is going to do in the world, that things God is going to do for us. And so this faith about the past and this hope in the future come together and they define for us how to love God and to love people in the present. So you have faith in the past, hope in the future, love in the present. That's the Christian life. And so um, what that means is the eschatology, the study of what is the future, where, where is, uh, you know, what does God have for us in the future is integral for us understanding how we're going to live right now, how we're going to make decisions right now. And so I, I really, I actually wanted to do a really detailed study of uh, eschatology this morning, and I, I had three points, and I got through my first point, and it was a whole sermon, and 
So I, we're, we're only going to do the first point this morning. I'm not gonna, so we're not going to talk about everything about eschatology. The three things I, what I, what I was going to say is, what does the Bible teach us about what is going um, uh, to happen before the end of the age? So Jesus talks about the end of the age where Christ is going to come. What would happen before? That was my first question. The second question, what's going to happen at the end of the age when Christ comes again? And then the third question, how should we live in the meantime? Today, we are just going to talk about that first question, what is going to happen before Christ coming, before the end of the age, where the Bible says Jesus will come again and bring his kingdom to the earth, as he tells us to pray, Lord, uh, uh, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Before he does that, what is going to happen? And um, let me just say, before I turn to that, I imagine that for some of you, you know, when I bring up a topic like eschatology, what's going to happen before, you know, Jesus comes again. Some of you say, you know, I understand that our predictions about the future define my present. But the kinds of predictions I'm thinking about my future are things like, am I going to get married? Am I going to, what's my career going to be? They're personal aspirations. But, you know, things like the end, you know, the end of history, it's so grand, it's so big, and, you know, it's so hard for me to enter into. And let me just say, if that's you, and you say, you know, the future that I'm interested in is my personal aspirations, but not, you know, the end of the world or something like that, the end of human history. This might be one of the big problems in your life. If I could just say that gently. Is that, that might be one of the big problems is that the only future that's defining you is your, the narrowness of I'm the center of the world. And one of the liberating things about the Bible is it says the future that you're a part of is not just about your personal aspirations. You are the part of God's movement of the kingdom of God that is coming, and you are a part of that. It is a much bigger thing. It's a much bigger story that you are playing a part in that God has brought you into. And actually, when you realize that, and you say, you know, it's not just my personal aspirations in the future that, that are concerning that I should be thinking about, but also the future of God's kingdom, it's very freeing. And actually, Jesus, that's exactly what Jesus is talking about. He says, whoever, you know, whoever seeks to find his life will lose it. Whoever finds his life will lose it. But ever, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And that's, that's why eschatology is important to us. So I want to in, invite you into this study and uh, into thinking about these things. And so this is our big question. What will happen before the end of the age? What will happen leading up to that um, And I'm going to say three things that I see in this passage. And the first thing is this. The first thing that's going to happen before the end is that God's kingdom will always grow alongside the kingdom of darkness. God's kingdom will always grow alongside the kingdom of darkness. Now, in this, the main parable in these verses that I just read is called the uh, the parable of the weeds. It describes the world, and it says the world is like a field. And there's a guy who owns a field, and he sends out his workers to go scatter seed in the field because he's going to have a harvest of wheat. And it turns out, while they're all sleeping, he has this enemy, this adversary, who sneaks in at night and starts putting seeds, uh, you know, putting weeds in with the wheat. And so that um, they're going to start growing up together. And... uh, And what Jesus says is that the wheat represents his kingdom, the sons of his kingdom, his people, and uh, those who who love God and love God's rule 
in the world, love Jesus being king. And then the weeds represent the kingdom of darkness, the, king, the kingdom of the adversary, or those who live for themselves, really. They don't submit to God's rule. They submit to their own rule. And this is what Jesus says in verse 30. Let both grow together until the harvest. And we know later the harvest is the end of the age. And uh, at the harvest, at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds in, uh, first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but uh, gather the wheat into my barn. So there's this aspect where the kingdom, um, and a kingdom of, uh, God's kingdom and the kingdom of darkness will always be growing together. And what that means to us is that God's kingdom will always experience opposition. So that means as Christians in the world, we will always to some extent be a counterculture. There's always going to be opposition around us. And, um, you know, I think we're uh, experiencing that in our culture, right? So uh, our culture is becoming uh, more and more secular, right? more and more people identify themselves as none when it asks what you know what is your what are your religious commitments they say i have no religious commitment i don't identify with a religious group of people or a religious institution or a religion i have no religion and um and yet at the same time statistics say that our culture is also becoming at the same time more religious and um conservative bible-believing churches are growing and actually this is true in the northwest you know the northwest has uh about a decade ago, was labeled the nun zone because they, it had the highest percentage of people who identified themselves as a nun. And yet also, uh, it's the churches that, you know, have really believed the Bible, believe in miracles, believe that Jesus is God, and all these things are actually growing churches. And we see that in Bellingham. You know, right when our church was planted, we were planted right alongside a number of other churches that are teaching the Bible, and they're pretty much all growing. They're all thriving. And so even in a place like Bellingham, it's a very secular place. Uh, Bellingham's the second most unchurched city in Washington, and Washington is one of the most unchurched states in the country. And yet, uh, people are, are in, you know, religious convictions are growing. And so which is it? Is our culture becoming more religious or more secular? And the answer is that our culture is becoming more polarized. All right, so the kind of squishy middle is disappearing and people are having stronger convictions of whether they believe in Jesus, believe in the Bible, or they don't. And they're moving away from it. And Jesus says it will always to some extent be this way. Uh, And we should not be surprised that wherever we are in human history, there is going to be opposition to the gospel and to the, the, the kingdom of God. And so you have this parable um, talking about the polarizing of, of uh, humanity. And if you just read that parable, you might get the impression that you know Jesus has his kingdom, the evil one has his kingdom, and they're like, oh, excuse me, um, they're like these equal opposites that are growing together in constant opposition. They're going to always be at war together. The kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness are always at war together. But Jesus actually corrects that and tells us two other parables that describe the phenomenal growth of the kingdom also. And this is the second thing we learn about. So what's going to happen uh, before the end is, first of all, God's kingdom will always grow alongside the kingdom of darkness. But second, God's kingdom will eventually cover the earth. And you see this. Look at verse 31. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, 
It is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. So you have these great images that Jesus gives of his kingdom. You know, and that's what Jesus was doing. Jesus spent most of his time in his, for, in his ministry investing in 12 guys. You know, Jesus is going to have this global movement. And how is he going to do it? He's going to invest in 12 guys. And he's going to care for them. And he's going to pass it off to them. They are like this little mustard seed. There's this tiny marginal movement in the Middle East 2,000 years ago. And yet he says that this little unassuming movement will catch you by surprise. And it will grow in uh, power and goodness. And, uh, you know, this should be a great encouragement to us, you know. We're, we're a little church here in Bellingham, the corner of Bellingham. We're loving the scriptures, believing the scripture, trying to be faithful. And Jesus says, listen, my kingdom is just like a mustard seed, but it grows. It's like a little bit of leaven that you put in, in uh, some dough, and it, the leaven spreads to the whole lump. And these two parables, um, you know, this first parable about the mustard seed, it grows into a tree. Jesus is actually alluding to uh, a part of, uh, some verses in Daniel chapter 4 where uh, the kingdom of Babylon is described as a tree in the same way where all the birds of the air are coming to this tree to build their nests in this tree. And in those verses, it says that, that the kingdom of Babylon will have dominion, a dominion that will reach to the ends of the earth. And Jesus is saying, in the same way that the kingdom of Babylon you know, was kind of covering all these nations, Jesus is saying, even though my kingdom looks very small, it's going to do the same thing. It is going to have this expansive growth. And ju- just as leaven works itself all the way through the dough, my kingdom is going to work itself all the way through the dough as well. And um, you know, I'll just tell you, my personal conviction, there, there are, Christians have many views on what the Bible teaches on these matters, but my, my personal conviction is the Bible... Uh, shows us that the movement of God's kingdom will be a profound uh, drawing of all peoples to God throughout history. And that the gospel will win. That the gospel will um, cover the earth and, and that the nations will indeed be converted. And uh, the reason I believe that, I'll tell you, is because um, in the very beginning of the Bible, kind of the first act that God does, you know, there's God makes a world, he makes... Uh, Adam and Eve, they sin against God. Sin is, is wreaking havoc, havoc on uh, humanity. And then God chooses this one man named Abraham. And he calls Abraham to himself, and he says he's going to make this great nation out of Abraham. And then he says to Abraham that in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God's purpose at the very beginning was to bless all the families of the earth and that he was going to do it through this one little family, a mustard seed, and that's going to grow and that it's going to expand. And look, it has expanded. And what you see is in places, uh, both Isaiah and Habakkuk both say that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. I think that's kind of an odd statement. The waters cover the sea. How do the waters cover the sea? The waters are the sea. And that's what it's going to say. It's like the, the, water, the seas are just filled with water. And the knowledge of the glory of the Lord is going to go to all the nations. And actually, in the Bible, the sea is a picture of all the nations of the, of the earth. And so the knowledge of the glory of the Lord is going to go to all of the nations. And, uh, you know, I know for many of you, you might struggle with the question... Because, you, you know, you see for yourself and you say, you know, I see that I'm a sinner. 
I see that I need Jesus to die for my sins if God's going to accept me. But one of the things I struggle with is there's so many people in the world that don't believe in Jesus. And are we really going to believe that this small minority of humanity is going to be saved while uh, the vast majority is going to be lost for eternity? And I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that the gospel is going to go to the nations. The nations are going to come. Every family is going to be blessed uh, in Abraham's seed. And what this all goes back to is you go back to the very beginning of the Bible. How does the Bible begin? The Bible begins by God making a beautiful world and he makes a man and a woman and he tells them and they're made in God's image and he tells them, I want you to be fruitful and fill the earth. And basically what this man and woman are supposed to do is they're supposed to have babies and they're going to have babies and you're going to fill the earth with these image bearers, with worshipers of God and then you're going to have this whole earth that basically becomes a temple of worshipers of God. And the question is, that was God's original mission. Is that mission going to be fulfilled? And what Jesus has come to do, he is the second Adam who has come to fulfill God's original mission to fill the earth with worshipers. And the question is, is he going to be successful? Is Jesus going to save the world? Did he try to save the world? Or is he saving the world? And you look in, uh, if you look at Colossians chapter 1, Paul refers, alludes back to Genesis 1 when he talks about the gospel. And this is what he says. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing. You hear that language, bearing fruit and growing? Be fruitful and multiply? What Adam and Eve were supposed to do, the gospel is now doing, Jesus is now doing, in the whole world, as it also does among you. And so God's original plan and creation is going to be fulfilled in Jesus. And as I'll tell you, as we look at human history, this is precisely what's happening. You know, some of you might know these statistics. At the end of the first century, after the church was started, only one in 360 people on the planet were Christians. One in 360, that's a tiny mustard seed of uh, the global population. 900 years later, 81,000, one in 270 people, still very small in the human population. By AD 1500, it had become one in 85 people on the planet knew Christ and were Christians. Then the missionary movement came. AD uh, 1900, uh, 1900, one in 21 people were now Christians. By 1970, one in 13. By today, one in seven at least. Could be as many as one in, one in three or one in four, but a conservative estimate is one in seven. The gospel has been doing exactly what God said it would. When Jesus says, go and make disciples of the nations, he doesn't say try to make disciples of the nations, or maybe the nations will become Christians. He says they will. And that's why, that's why we're here. That's why this church was started, is because the gospel is continuing to go forward. And I'll just tell you, the reason why I think this is important for us to have an optimistic understanding of God's welcome of the nations, the welcome of loss, to say, come and know the kingdom of my beloved son, is that for the last century, Christians have actually had a very pessimistic view of the expansion of the gospel. It's been very common to say, you know, there's going to be a small group of people who are going to be saved. God's going to just... Uh, destroy this world in judgment. And it's a very pessimistic view, but that has not been the dominant view of Christians for the last 500 years. Because in, in the 18th century, 
uh, was the beginning of the missionary movement. Some of you will know William Carey, who really began the missionary movement. He was an uh, English pastor who went to India as a missionary. And there was a whole stream of missionaries that were coming out of the UK uh, uh, during those two centuries and really expanded the gospel. And, and that's why the gospel has expanded so much in the last two or three hundred years. And almost all of them had a very optimistic view of God welcoming in the nations. They were called what's called a post-millennialist. They were post-millennialists. They believed they were coming into a time where God was going to welcome in the nations. And it was this optimism, optimism that enabled them to do the mission of God. It's an optimism, and when we have an optimism about what God's doing in the world, we begin to be a part of the story that he's doing, the expansion of his kingdom. And so Christians, um, if they're going to be engaged in the work of the kingdom, need this optimism. And so what's interesting about these passages is Jesus gives us these two parables that in some ways say opposite things, right? The first paragraph, actually, if you were here last week, Jesus gave the parable of the sower. And it was about this sower putting out seed, which is the word of God. And how many people really embraced the word of God last week? One in four. It's kind of a sober view of how many people are going to receive the gospel. And then he tells this, this uh, parable of the, the wheat and the weeds. And it seems like there's these two kingdoms in opposition. And then he tells the parable of the mustard seed and the, of the leaven. And it seems like the gospel is going to expand and win and take over, the, take over the world. Which is it? How do these two visions of the world fit together? And this is the third thing that we learn in this passage about God's, about God's kingdom and what will happen before Christ comes again is that the kingdom expands only through death and resurrection. The kingdom expands only through death, or death and resurrection. And um, how do you have both a sober vision of the kingdom of God, the Christians are not triumphantly taking over the world, but we need to be sober about it, and at the same time have a profoundly optimistic vision of the kingdom of God, at the same time, we have to look at the gospel. How did Jesus bring his kingdom? Was it just through triumph? No, it was through death, through taking the cross. It looked like a defeat. And then he was raised, and it was victory. And you get a hint to that, that Jesus is always using seeds as an image of the kingdom of God. Why is he using seeds as the picture? This is what he says in John 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth, and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's using this image of seeds because it's, it's the image of death and resurrection. Death and resurrection. Death and resurrection. How is the kingdom going to expand? It's through Jesus' death and resurrection, but it's also the death and resurrection of God's people. And uh, if, you, if you turn to page three in your bulletin, I put a quote for you from uh, G.K. Chesterton. In Chesterton has this his kind of masterpiece is a book called The Everlasting Man, which is somewhat his overview of human history. And in one of those chapters, he talks about the death of the church and how one of the marks of the church's history is that it seems like Christendom or the church or the kingdom dies regularly. And this is what he says. Christendom has had a series of revolutions and in each one of them, Christianity has died. Christianity has died many times and risen again, for it had a God who knew the way out of the grave. But for the, 
but the first extraordinary fact which marks this history is this, that Europe has been turned upside down over and over again, and that at the end of each of these revolutions, the same religion has again been found on top. The faith is always converting the age, not as an old religion, but as a new religion, as a resurrected, new life religion. It, uh, it is so true that three or four times, at least in the history of Christendom, the whole soul seemed to have gone out of Christianity and almost every man in his heart expected its end. When Christianity rose again suddenly and threw them, it was almost as unexpected as Christ rising from the dead. And so the cross and resurrection is not just the beginning of the kingdom, it is the whole pattern of the kingdom and of the church's work in the world. And of course we've seen this in the last two centuries where uh, the Christian West has abandoned Christ. You know, Europe is spiritually dead. Western Europe is spiritually dead these days. And what happened? You know, at the end of the 19th century, everyone was saying, you know, we're modern people, we believe in science, we can't believe in the Bible anymore. Christianity is going to come to an end. Do you know what happened almost immediately next? The most massive expansion of Christianity in Africa, in South America, in, uh, in Korea, in China, and the, the, gospel, uh, the kingdom was resurrected. It died and it was raised, and it was raised more glorious, more powerful, more beautiful, more multicultural. We have more languages that we're speaking the gospel in, and, uh, and understanding new theology. It's becoming more richer and, and, and uh, more textured, the gospel, the kingdom is. And so this is what God does, is he lets even his people die just as our king died. And um, one of the reasons why uh, this is so important is because one of the characteristics of many Christians in our culture is that we feel a sense of entitlement to cultural power in our culture. Um, and part of this is because, you know, we look at, uh, you know, American culture that a generation ago, we thought, you know, America used to be a Christian place. And the church was respected. Pastors were respected. Their thoughts were, you know, people looked to them for, for wisdom. They don't do that anymore. They don't look to the Bible. The values of the Bible are not respected. And we think that we have a right to be um, a, a dominant force in society. And so one of the things, you know, when we say things like this, we need to take back America for God. Let's think of a statement like that. What are we saying? We need to take back America for God. We're saying America is ours. We have a right to it. And the fact that we're being marginalized in academia, in the media, in in politics, we're offended by that. But the reason we're so offended and we feel this resentment about that is because we've forgotten that the only way the kingdom grows is through the cross. We're going to be marginalized. We're going to be thrown out. We're going to be disrespected because that's what happened to our king. And in fact, that's the only way that the gospel goes forward. And it will always go forward that way. And so even though we have an optimism about the future, about where the kingdom is going, we have a a sober understanding that the gospel is only going to grow through death and resurrection, death and resurrection, death and resurrection. That is our calling. That is the path for the kingdom of God. And um, what that means for us is our power is in weakness. Our significance is in insignificance 
in society. And it turns out when we embrace that, when we embrace that we are going to be despised and yet we love our neighbors through that and we preach the gospel through that, it turns out that God gives us influence and power and we do transform societies. And that's why Christians have invented hospitals, have invented universities, have abolished slavery, have transformed societies throughout history. It was because um, they embraced their calling through the expansion of the kingdom to love their neighbor. And so, what does that mean for us? Okay, so I've just said a lot. Let me just summarize really quick. What's going to happen before the end? I believe that the gospel is going to go to all nations and that uh, we, there will be far more people in heaven than there are that not in heaven in the weeping and gnashing of teeth. That the gospel is going to win. But the only way it's going to go forward is not through this triumphal uh, assuming that everyone is going to, you know, that we have a right to the nations. It's going to come through God's people sacrificially loving their neighbors. And subtly, the gospel will pervade all of culture. And what that means for us is, you know, this is a great image. The leaven, a little bit of leaven is put into dough. Do you know, that's what we are in Bellingham. You leave this place with the gospel inside of you, with the treasure of God's love inside of you, and you go into your workplace, into your home, into your neighborhood, with your neighbors. Wherever you are, you are like leaven that God is spreading throughout this whole lump. And you have the Spirit of God in you, and as we go out, it will expand, and uh, it will pervade the whole culture. So that's what God's calling for us is, this is not complex, not complex visions of the end times. It's God's, the, the kingdom of God expanding and drawing all nations to Christ, who indeed is the victor through his cross. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would teach us uh, what it is uh, to serve you in the world and how your kingdom goes forward that we would be, both be optimistic about your great love drawing the nations, but also that we would be sober about the calling you have to take up our cross and follow you. Would we not be surprised when we're despised, but would we believe that um, when we lose our life, we'll find it, and that when a seed falls into the ground, it bears much fruit? Would that be true for us as a church, that we would lovingly sacrifice for this community? And would we see your kingdom come and expand even here in Bellingham? And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.